0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a dispute over one of the most famous collections of medieval religious art worth about $250 million. The heirs of Jewish art dealers say the Nazi government forced the dealers to sell the collection for about a third of its value. And they want to sue Germany in a U.S. court to get it back. But the Supreme Court ruled unanimously in Germany's favor. In the opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts said the court looks to the law of property, not to the law of genocide in deciding jurisdiction, echoing the oral arguments. Well, I guess my question is why that
1: is. If it is part of a campaign of genocide, that doesn't alter uh, the fact that it's simply taking property.
0: The justices were also concerned that allowing a suit against Germany in a U.S. court might open the U.S. up to a similar suit in a German court. A concern expressed by Justice Stephen Breyer. I mean, the list goes on and on of what violates international law. And many of them involve property. And if we can bring these kinds of actions here, well, so can these other countries do the same and accuse us? I mean, what about Japanese internment, which involved 30,000 people in World War II who were not American citizens? But the case isn't over for the heirs. Joining me is MC Sungaila, Chair of the Appellate Practice at Buckhalter. MC, foreign countries are generally immune from being dragged into U.S. courts, but the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act provides an exception for property taken in violation of international law. Tell us about that expropriations exception here.
2: The question was Does that expropriation exception apply? to property taken from nationals of the country who's being sued, or is it only foreigners who are not citizens of that country? And the court said, if it's basically a dispute between someone who had their property taken who was a citizen of Germany at the time and the lawsuit is against Germany, then the expropriation exception does not apply because you're talking about really a domestic dispute in their view within the boundaries of Germany.
0: What was behind the chief's conclusion that the court would look to the law of property, not the law of genocide, in determining jurisdiction here?
2: So one of the arguments that the heirs made was that, well, look, this is not just garden variety taking of property. This is in the context of a genocide, and there should be some ability to intervene when that happens and to be able to sue in U.S. courts. And so that is why the chief justice said, first of all, you don't look to the law of genocide to decide whether you can have a claim. You look to the language of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the law as it was when the act was adopted. And that law really talked about property and it it could have had an express exception for genocide and it did not.
0: How much is this the court not wanting to get involved in determining issues involving genocide? I think that the, the larger takeaway here is really,
2: I mean, it's tied in with the court's views of the alien tort statute cases, that it will be, again, deciding uh, later this term, but also its previous decisions there. The chief justice quoted from the Cobell decision saying, we have recognized that U.S. law governs domestically but does not rule the world. And so I think in a moral way, we might want the court to do that. But the court is saying, as a legal matter, we have decided that we are not going to take on the human rights concerns of the world. We are not going to be the place where all of those things should be brought. We are going to just deal in our wheelhouse what we think is appropriate for our courts to handle. And when Congress has explicitly told us that this is something that can be handled here, then we will handle it. If not, then we leave it to the other countries themselves. For example, go to a German court to decide that or human rights courts. And we are going to stay out of that because we are not going to be the police courts of the world. And that is, on the one hand, Concerning because the U.S. has long had the perception of being the moral authority in the world, if not the legal authority in some ways, because of its strong rule of law. So on the one hand, you would say, well, this is disappointing because we could be perceived as you know U.S. moral authority on the international stage being weakened. But on the other hand, this kind of approach is consistent with what the United States took immediately after World War II with regards to the Holocaust. It returned the art that it found to the individual countries and told those countries to figure out how to divide that up and who it belonged to. So it stepped out of that role in the very beginning in many ways in terms of setting up those tribunals and let each country do that.
0: During the oral arguments, several of the justices we're concerned about, you know, turnabouts fair play. And if we let Germany be sued over this in our courts, then who's to say that Germany is not going to let the U.S. be sued in its courts for human rights violations?
2: You know, in every decision, there are the explicit factors and the implicit factors and just other factors that the court is concerned with in making a decision. And that That point that you mentioned showed up in the dissent in the D.C. Circuit opinion, and it was repeated at oral argument, and obviously it played a a significant role in how the court viewed the case. It did not want to go out on what it thought was a limb in terms of finding jurisdiction here out of concern that what you said, turnabout is fair play, and we could be inadvertently exposing the U.S. to some unexpected lawsuits in other courts, and we don't want to be the ones to do that. On the other hand, there are potentially some avenues for the heirs to potentially navigate, right? The court remanded down in the Germany case to assess whether perhaps, hmm, maybe the heirs' ancestors were not actually German citizens at the point in time that the property was taken. And if that is true, then that's a narrow path to tread in order to find jurisdiction here.
0: That issue was raised at the oral arguments, and Justice Neil Gorsuch even brought up the possibility of remanding the case back to the lower courts. I'd like to return to the question of uh, what do we do about a stateless people?
1: Suppose that they were, in fact, stripped of their citizenship before the taking, but that you said that doesn't matter because they're still nationals. And I'm I'm asking you, well, in what relevant sense does that make a difference? If we were to find in your favor here, shouldn't they be given a shot to, to, to make this
2: argument on remand? The plaintiff had said there was a point in time when Jews were not citizens. They were stripped of their citizenship rights in Germany. And if that was true at the time that these transfers occurred, then it's really hard to call them true citizens and we should look at that differently. And that's what they're arguing. But Germany seemed to be saying, well, yeah, we might not have treated our Jewish citizens well, but the timing at which we did that did not precede the transfer. So at the time of the transfer, they were in fact still citizens. And so it sounds like you need to work out factually what was true at that point in time and what the plaintiffs can establish in terms of functional citizenship at the time of the transfer. And so that's why I was sent back for factual development.
0: So it is possible that the heirs could prove that and keep their lawsuit going. Do you think it's likely or just possible? I think it's just possible. It really comes down to the factual question of what they can show and what
2: they can prove at that point in time. And that's really why the Supreme Court remanded it, because it said, well, looks like there might be something here, basically, but we don't decide facts, so we're going to send it back. I think also that Germany had argued that they really hadn't urged that argument early enough, and so perhaps they had waived that argument as well. So that would be another question, which would be a factual question for the lower court to assess. So is it a path? Yes. Is it really likely? Mm, It seems like a very treacherous path and a very narrow path. So, you know, on the likelihood scale, I would say it's probably unlikely, but my heart wants to say, you know, at least it's possible.
0: Is the long and winding road of this lawsuit similar to other cases involving the recovery of Nazi looted art? So in some ways, it does kind of echo
2: what the U.S. did after World War II, and it's consistent with that in this context. And the story of Holocaust recovery, particularly art recovery in in the U.S. and U.S. courts, is not encouraging. I mean, it's just a series of procedural hurdles, whether you're talking about suing a foreign government that has the property or took the property, or whether you're talking about suing private companies and individuals. It's a gauntlet to get through there and to have an individual claim go forward on the merits.
0: Are there a lot more of these types of cases out there? Well, it's all intertwined. So if it
2: were easier you get past procedural hurdles and even jurisdictional hurdles, you might have even more art claims than you have now because about one-third to one-fifth of Europe's art holdings changed hands during the Holocaust. And so there's a lot of art with some, you know, potentially stinky pedigree there that are in people's hands. And so there's a lot of art that could be subject to claims. Whether people decide to bring those claims or not, they might be discouraged from doing that when they see the many procedural hurdles. And if you had less procedural hurdles, not only would more claims come forward, but you'd have leverage to negotiate some kind of middle ground between the museums or institutions or countries that hold this property and the families. So it's really disappointing and sad circumstance overall because you'd like to think not only could international court on war crimes and genocide be able to provide some kind of larger societal answers and restorative justice to things, but what happens to the families, the people who are impacted by this? Do they have any individual justice anywhere? And as the avenues narrow for kind of individual claims, that leads you to the sense that maybe they don't, and
0: that's a shame. Thanks, MC. That's MC Sungaila, chair of the appellate practice at Buckalter. The supply of vaccines against COVID-19 is limited and distribution has been chaotic. Federal health officials have stressed the second dose of the vaccine must be administered at the correct interval to get the highest level of protection from covid But distribution sites, which are operated by both public and private entities, have taken different approaches to second doses, and that's left many people concerned they won't be able to get their second dose of the vaccine in the recommended time frame. Joining me is Lydia Wheeler, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law covering health care. Lydia, tell us about Peter Myers. So Peter Myers is an emeritus professor at George
1: Washington University Law School. He's actually the former director of his vaccine injury litigation clinic, Um, and he is 74 years old. He lives in Washington, D.C., and he went and he was able to get his first dose of the Moderna uh, coronavirus vaccine on January 14th, but he doesn't know when he's going to be able to go back and get his second dose. Um, He didn't get an appointment time from the Washington Senior Wellness Center. Um, and so he doesn't know uh, if he's going to be able to get it in the 28 day timeframe um, that you're supposed to get it within. So he's a little out of luck at the moment.
0: And I take it that he knows, you know, the lay of the land since he worked in this area, he would know what to do. Absolutely.
1: You know, he was saying that, you know, there's not a lot that he can do uh, about it. He just kind of has to wait and see and be patient and hope that he can go back online And get it and secure another appointment time, um, which he said was a very frustrating process the first time around. You know, many people are, you know, once they're in a phase where they're eligible, they have to go online and fill out a form and try to secure one of the few slots that are available. Um, So he's a little bit worried that um, that process is going to be the same again, and that he's going to be competing um, with other people who are either trying to get their second dose or um, or possibly people who are trying to get their first dose again. Um, But what's interesting here is that, you know, for people like Peter, there's really no recourse for them if they don't get their second dose of the coronavirus vaccine in time.
0: Also, just to go back to the scheduling, I've heard that it's really haphazard that spots can open up, you know, in the middle of the night, and then you go in the next morning, there are no spots. It doesn't seem like there are very many places where it's logically thought through, That's right. And every state is doing it a
1: little bit differently and it all depends on the supply that they're getting in. Um, You know, Peter told me that he's heard from some of his friends that people have shown up for an appointment time and then been told, sorry, we don't have any more of this vaccine. Uh, You have to come back or you have to go back online and try to secure another appointment time. So it's really frustrating for people um, who are, you know, really wanting this vaccine so that they can get some sort of, um, you know, a level of immunity from the coronavirus vaccine, especially people who are more at risk and in these populations where we know that COVID-19 affects them at higher rates.
0: So some places do give you an appointment for the second shot after you get the first shot. What are the other places do? Just say come back whenever?
1: Right. So some places when you go in for your first dose, just like you said, they actually hand you a slipper paper that says, you know, here's your appointment for your second dose. Here's the time. Here's the date. We'll see you back. Um, in other places, um, you know, people are saying, you know, the clinics are saying, we will reach out to you at some point in the future to allow you to come back in our, into our system to schedule for a second dose. Um, which seems to suggest that second dose patients aren't, will not be competing um, in the same pool as people who are seeking their first dose. Um, But some people weren't even told that. Some people just came in and like Peter Myers got his first dose and then was kind of sent on his way. And now he has kind of no, um, no knowledge of when, you know, a second dose could be administered.
0: There is a federal compensation program to help people harmed by a vaccine.
1: There's a federal program that's set up, but it's only eligible uh, to people who are actually injured by a vaccine. It wasn't actually created to address this type of a problem where, you know, you could maybe not get your second dose of a vaccine in time. This is a program that's meant for people who have kind of medical issues or medical injury resulting from the vaccine. So if you got the COVID vaccine and you had some medical illness as a result, this could possibly be a program that would provide you compensation for your injuries and your medical bills, but this sort of a system wouldn't cover you just because you didn't get your second dose of the vaccine in time. And, you know, what's interesting is that the nation's legal system really isn't set up to hold anyone legally liable for this type of a distribution failure either.
0: I understand that the Biden administration is telling states or cities to get people vaccinated the first time. Don't worry about holding back on second doses. We'll give you the second dose.
1: That's right. So the Biden administration um, recently announced plans to purchase 100 million more doses of both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Um, but, you know, senior administration officials have, have told reporters um, that the federal government does not have a significant um, inventory of shots on hand. So that means that some people will, are going to have to try to win the lottery for a vaccine appointment all over again. Now, the CDC recently um, stretched the timeline. Um, They said that you could wait um, up to six weeks to get your second dose. Um, And they said that they did that in case it's not feasible to get your second dose in the 21 or 28-day timeframe. You know, Pfizer is recommending that you get your second dose within 21 days. If you get the Moderna vaccine, you have until 28 days. So the CDC recently released guidance that said, okay, you can wait up to 42 days. Um, you know, because and, and that seems to suggest that they were doing that because they understand that, you know, we don't have the supply on hand and that there might be people like Peter Myers or or others who, you know, may not get their second dose in time.
0: Like everything else with COVID-19, there is conflicting guidance out there because the day the CDC came out with that, I remember seeing Dr. Fauci on some show and he said that you should get it within the time frame. So That's right. It's confusing.
1: Right. So you, you're you're 100% right. Um, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He actually warned um, shortly after the CDC released that guidance. Um, he warned that deviating from the vaccine schedule could create a risk for infection Uh, given that we have these new COVID variants that are more contagious. Um, I reached out to the CDC on that and asked them to kind of respond to that. And they said um, that the CDC still recommends that people get their second dose of the vaccine as close to the recommended interval as possible. Um, Again, that's three weeks for Pfizer, um, a month for Moderna. Um, you know, CDC said that they were just trying to create a little bit more flexibility by stretching it to the six weeks. Um, you know, that they, they said that we're not recommending this as a strategy to allow more people to get their first dose, but rather to address feasibility issues. Um, now, that being said, you know, they did say you could wait six weeks, but they also didn't say, they said that there's limited data on what the efficacy of the vaccines are if you go outside of that, you know, four week or six week window. Um, But then I asked, you know, what happens if you miss the four weeks, miss the six weeks, then what happens? Do you have to start the regimen all over again? And CDC is saying, no, as long as you get your second dose, you don't have to start and go back and get your first dose again.
0: This is the problem, the confusion of messages. And it seems like after what happened with the CDC during the Trump administration that more people trust in Dr. Fauci than the CDC.
1: Yeah, that might very well be the case. You know, there are mixed messages and that's what's made this vaccine rollout so frustrating for people. Um, You know, there's a limited supply and distribution has been chaotic and we've been left, you know, it's been left to the states to decide kind of how they're going to administer the vaccines and roll this out in phases. Um, You know, some states are opening, you know, have already opened it up to, you know, those under... Um, 65, you know, New York State where my family is. um, You know, I know my parents are, are, you know, between the ages of 60 and 65 and, you know, they can't get it yet. Um, So, yeah, it's, a, it's an extremely frustrating process, but, you know, even people like Peter Myers, who w- was able to get his first dose and, you know, he doesn't know when he's going to get his second dose, he's still not deterred, you know, because he says that it's so important that you get the vaccine that he's going to keep trying and trying and trying over and over and over again um, until he secures another time slot so he can get a second dose. And, you know, that's his recommendation that people just try to be as patient as possible. We've never had anything in this country, you know, we, we haven't seen anything like this, um, you know, before, even with, you know, the 1918 Spanish flu, to have a vaccine roll out this quickly, um, you know, everybody is, is, is still learning.
0: So can state or federal governments be sued over the failure to provide the second shot?
1: Unfortunately, no, you know, state and federal governments have what they call sovereign immunity, um, which protects them from this, um, from, from lawsuits and being held liable. Um, you know, Congress also passed um, uh, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. Um, And that shields anyone who manufactures, distributes, administers the vaccine from being sued as well. Um, But even if those protections weren't in place, it would be almost impossible to bring a personal injury lawsuit against a pharmacy or a health clinic that um, administers this type of a vaccine. Explain why. Um, so for there to be, you know, personal injury liability, there there has to have been an injury um, that was caused by either wrongful conduct um, that was either negligent or intentional. So, you know, attorneys say, well, the first problem is how do you prove that you're injured because you didn't get your second dose of the COVID vaccine in time? Like, how do you prove that you wouldn't have gotten COVID, you know, if you had gotten, you know, the first shot and the second shot in the allotted time frame. Um, so there's a problem there. And then secondly, attorneys tell me that you, no one is at fault um, either negligently or intentionally by not being able to get you this second dose because we have, a, you know, a shortage of supply and, you know, we're, we're, Our federal officials have not rolled out, like, you know, there wasn't a distribution plan in place. So, you know, your local pharmacy, your health clinic, wherever you're getting a vaccine, it's really not their fault that you can't get your second dose in time if that
0: happens. So the lawyers are even saying that in order to sue, you'd have to get COVID in order to prove injury?
1: Yeah, you'd have to get COVID between shot one and shot two. Um, And then how do you prove that you wouldn't have gotten COVID if you had gotten the shot in time? You know, because the first dose, as we know, doesn't provide you 100% with immunity. Um, The COVID vaccine isn't 100%, you know, doesn't provide 100% immunity to begin with. Um, It does provide data showing that the vaccine, once you get your second dose, will keep you out of the hospital and keep you from getting a severe uh, case of COVID-19. But it won't won't necessarily stop you from getting the virus. So how do you prove in court that you, you know, weren't already maybe one of those 5% or 15% that would have gotten it anyway? You know, that's what attorneys are saying. It's hard to prove. Um, now a person might have a claim if there was some sort of outrageous conduct that delayed your second dose. Um, you know, that, that may be a way that you could say that you were injured, um, but that conduct would have to be like, you know, cr- crazy. Um, there would have to be issues with management. Say you had a pharmacist that was kind of like, you know, shoving vaccines out the back door to their friends and family, you know, and, and and that was allowed to happen. That that could be possibly a cause for a claim.
0: So, what's the best advice that attorneys are giving people?
1: Attorneys say that you know it's so important that people still try to go and get their vaccine, and you know, just because you can't hold anybody legally liable if you don't get it in time, doesn't mean that that should be a deterrent for you to getting the vaccine at all. You know, even though we're a really litigious, um, you know, society, just because you can't sue anybody doesn't mean you shouldn't go get your COVID vaccine.
0: I mean, are there any additional plans in place in in certain states to fix this problem of the second vaccine?
1: You know, I think um, states are are hoping that the supplies will come in time and that they'll be able to... um, you know, give out the second doses um, to the people who have already received first shots. Um, So it kind of, we're in a wait and see pattern right now about how all this plays out.
0: Thanks so much for being on the show, Lydia. That's Lydia Wheeler, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law covering healthcare. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg.